Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Quick programming note at the top of this episode. I completely butchered Steven's name, and I am sorry about that in the intro. And by this time, the intro's all recorded, etc., etc. So I just kept it in there because I only mispronounced him once. But his name is Steven Christian. I know that now, and I apologize profusely to him. But uh, yeah, Steven Christian from Amberlynn. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Oh, hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast, because we are talking about independent music and people involved in documenting it, putting it out, just caring about it in a deep and intense way. And as usual, this person embodies all of those values and then some. Her name is Vic Martin. She is a longtime friend of mine. She has worked at Revelation Records. She has run her own record label slash zine called Simba Records and Simba Zine predating that. And then she currently also works at uh, Pirates Press Records. That's her current gig, uh, whereas like Revelation was her past gig, and she worked there for, oh man, probably the better part of like 15 plus years, if not more. That's where I first ran across her. But uh, Veek is definitely a lifer, and she cares about punk and hardcore and expression in a very deep and meaningful way. And I've always wanted to have a discussion with her, and we were talking the other, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I was like, let's, how about you do this? Like, come on, let's let's have fun. And we did. It was a very interesting and revealing conversation because uh, she's been a person that's been very steadfast in my life as far as, you know, supporting my own interests and <laughs> desires within the music industry, uh, but then also just being a real advocate for bands and a real advocate for a lot of people that are, you know, wanting to learn about the industry and stuff like that. So needless to say, uh, sh- she's a good egg. <laughs> and I-, I wanted to, you, the listener, to be able to experience that. So uh, we'll talk to her in a moment. 
you can do me some favors. First and foremost, you can review the podcast on Apple Podcast or on Spotify. Give it some stars. Give it some likes. Well, likes, maybe. I think that's what you do. I, here I am, just like spouting off. Like, yeah, go to Facebook and give some likes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can also follow the podcast on YouTube. I will include a link in the show notes, and you can do that because I know a lot of people listen to the podcast on YouTube and they find that valuable because, uh, you know, sometimes people can't just like put in their headphones at work and listen to a podcast on their phone. They have to listen to their computer, you know, maybe a little surreptitiously. So I like to be able to hang out with people at their work in a, you know, (laughs) non-firewall access scenario. And uh, you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I also have to shout out I went to a show last night uh, as I'm recording this. I just saw Change Play, who, if you're not familiar with, a past guest of the show, uh, a Ram who played in Betrayed and played in Champion. He sings for Change, and I love the band. And I got to see my friend Chris, who plays guitar in the band, and it was just... It was great for us old heads, us uh, people that are over 40 years old and still care about punk and hardcore. It was a nice nice injection of life, so to speak. And it was at program in Fullerton, California. And those of you that live in the Southern California area and have ever visited program know how special that place is. I love going to shows there, and it just, uh, it's just such a great vibe. So, yes, shout out to good shows, right? We all want to go to good shows. I also have to uh, admit to all of you, I, I've been going through a lot of work turmoil as of late, so my my head's been all over the place, but just looking at <laughs> the podcast and how meaningful it is to you guys on a week-to-week basis, I uh, it's, it's not lost on me, and I really appreciate the steadfastness, if that's not even really a word, that you guys, uh, you know, consume the podcast, and I, I really, really do genuinely appreciate that, so... Here is my discussion with Veek, and uh, enjoy. My first actual exposure to you was uh, your zine. Uh, I know, I don't think I actually picked up a physical copy of it because I don't know how much uh, distribution you had in the United States in general. Um, but I just didn't, I, I didn't pick it up physically. But I remember seeing, uh, you know, kind human beings that either just uploaded, you know, scans or <laughs> screenshots, not screenshots because that didn't yeah. exist at that time. But <laughs> I, I was always, and I know that a lot of people, speak about this in regards to you was obviously how forthcoming you were about, well, like everything. (laughs) And you clearly gave people a lot of insight to who you were as a person. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to guess that that is obviously, I mean, what I know you to be as a person, but was there any sort of hesitation as you started to you know, throw yourself out there in the uh, printed word <laughs> and to be like, well, I'm a little nervous about this, but I still want to do it. Uh, what was the thought process as you started to, you know, put pen to paper? So when I started doing the zine, it was, you know, way more of the traditional interviews, articles, that kind of thing. And then I think it was 93. I read many, many zines uh, written by Riot Girls. And that completely changed my perspective on zines. And what I what I got out of that was so much more than what I got out of reading 
people being interviewed. And there was a lot of there was a lot of riot girl zines about trauma, about sexual assault, about loss, about grief, about abuse. And I think I always just felt like what I was sharing was for the most part nowhere near as traumatic as what those women or girls as they might have been then. I don't you know, they might have been freaking seventeen years old and at the time, that felt like women, but looking back, they were children. Um, right. Nowhere near as brave as what they were doing. So I didn't really think about it that much. Um, I'm also just a big believer in, what is it? The singer, uh, there's an English band called, a British band called One, uh, One Night Stand in South Dakota. And he has, a, he has a lyric that says, real writers eat their young. And it's just, you know, the, the concept that if, it, if it's happened to you, you, own, you have ownership over it. If somebody doesn't like what you say about them, tough shit. They should have they behaved better or they can do their own art. They can write or sing or do what they want to put their perspective forward. I never really, I never really hesitated about it. And the only time I really ever got in serious serious trouble from it was actually from my father when I shared a lot of um writings about my mother's death he's the only person who ever objected and I I told him it was my art and he didn't have the right to censor it right he basically accepted that so yeah that that would be a a long-winded answer I guess no, that, that's that's exactly why podcasts exist. But um, I I think that there is that no, and I mean the same thought process goes through people when they are writing, you know, biography, anything nonfiction related. When you're bringing people into the discussion, even if it is just yourself, there's always that shrapnel of your own uh, opinion and perspective can trigger you know can can matriculate out and others are affected because of that but i think that what you're talking about of the only person that actually gave you feedback was you know a member of your family as opposed to you know other people that felt that they that they couldn't reckon with your writing because it's like oh my gosh like she's talking about her period like that's crazy you know like i'm not i don't know how to i don't know how to deal with that i mean i I feel like social change comes from people being honest about real life, whether it's talking about sex or periods or politics or relationships or death. You know, I think that real emotional connection is the most important thing in the world. And whether that's through music or writing or art or conversation, that's what makes us feel connected on the planet. And I got so much positive, positive feedback when I did the zine of people writing and meeting and connecting with me, the, the positive far, far outweighed the negative. And to be told that, you know, I, that I changed things for people and changed people's perspectives. That's, that's kind of what you hope for as a political writer. And to me, the personal was always the political because it was a political statement just discussing it in the first place because women aren't meant to talk about that stuff. Or right. no one's meant to talk about that stuff. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I and I, I think that that's why I know when I first started to like literally 
physically purchase zines, you know, it was like 15 or 16, just to get, be given a portal into not only people's opinions of bands and interviews and all those things, but I always found myself attracted to when people injected their personality into it, whether I agreed or disagreed with them. I think that that understanding made it so much more real for me personally. And I know, like you said, many other people who actually were like, oh, I love this person now because I see more of who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I loved like Dan O'Mahony's zine and Kent McLeod's zine and, you know, people that actually put their personality into the zine rather than it being a vehicle for other people. So that's not to say that interviews aren't and weren't, you know, important, but I just think that if if you are doing a zine because you are a writer, then you should have something to say. But I also feel like that about people in bands, you know, don't be a singer in a band unless you've got something to say. Right. <laughs> what, you mean you just don't, like, look cool on stage? I mean, that's, no, that, that's, yeah. that's, that's not the point. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, so putting the lens on you as an individual, like there are sort of biographical things that I personally know, but obviously want to get out there to the world. You actually were born and raised in the UK, correct? Correct. And I moved to America when I was 27. Okay. To, to work at Revelation Records. Of course. Which I did for 20 years. And now I'm the label manager at Pirates Press Records. I've been here three and a half years. Oh, yes. And we'll, we'll get into all of those things. The um, And so where, where specific, were you in London proper or were you in one of the uh, outlying uh, suburbs, as it were? <laughs> um, I grew up in Brighton, a town on the south coast, uh, 52 miles from London. Then I went to college in London. Then I moved home to Brighton. And then I lived in Manchester for a year and Leeds for two years. So I've lived in four different places in the UK. Got it. And it gives you um, a nice uh, overview of that uh, country because, I mean, all of those places are so drastically different from one another. Yeah. Well, Brighton and London, not so much because they're pretty close. And then Leeds and Manchester have a lot in common because they're pretty close. But yeah, having lived in different places definitely gave me a, you know, a, um, a different perspective. And, um, you know, when I was living in Leeds and Manchester, it was definitely I was immersed in their local scenes rather than the South of England scenes. Right. And, and did you find, I mean, I know Brighton now, uh, a lot of bands have come from there. Uh, I personally don't identify that as being a uh, hotspot for punk and or hardcore, especially in the you know early to mid nineties, but I could be completely wrong. What was your, I guess, entry point to that style of music? I mean, it was definitely kind of a hotspot in the, it's, it's the most radically left-wing city in the UK. Okay. Um, it's got the highest LGBTQIA plus community. So being born and growing up there, I grew up in this really, you know, hippie, left-wing, positive city. Um, and, you know, there were, there were a bunch of punks. There was, but the biggest scene was definitely in London. And I didn't, I got into hardcore the summer before, the summer I graduated high school. So then I went off to London that autumn and started going to shows regularly once I was living in London. Of course, there were a lot more in London there. So, right. Yeah. 89 that was because I'm old. Yeah, it's okay. No, you're, you're, you're aged uh, like a fine wine or something. I don't know what people say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so prior to that, I mean, I, I've always known you to be a, uh, you know, warm and, and welcoming person in general. 
And uh, so what, what kind of girl did you find yourself being as you were going through, you know, elementary school and, you know, junior high and high school? Were you, uh, you know, precocious? Were you, uh, were you introverted? Where was the vibe? Um, I've always been an extrovert and I've always been confident and I've always been smarter than the average bear. So I had a pretty rough, the equivalent of junior high for you, I, I had it pretty rough. Um, transition schools. They did, they did messed up things in my school where they like published test results publicly and I was top of the list and you get bullied for shit like that when you go to a shitty, a shitty school. And I think that just made me tougher. Um, and I, I got some good friends when I was about 14 or 15 and I discovered feminism when I was 12 and read every single book I could find. And by the time I was 14, I was pretty left wing. And then I studied a lot of sociology and became radically left wing (laughs) and had a group of friends that were of a similar mindset. Um, But also, as I said, growing up in Brighton was very enabling for that. Um, And then I think I discovered Billy Bragg when I was 15 and Devo when I was 16 and pretty much exclusively listened to them until I discovered punk at 17 and then hardcore at 18. Um, right. But, yeah, I was I was outgoing. Um, did you play sport? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I did. We had, it was compulsory. I, I, I was right in or in our high school hockey team, but I was captain of my high school chess team. But I, Ooh, that, that's, a, that's a good thing. I like that. Yeah, yeah that's a fun fact for you. Sure. Um, but yeah, I was probably a little bit obnoxious. <laughs> no, it's, I know that's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. I, 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 I can't believe that you would, uh, you know, be a person that, you know, might rub someone the wrong way when you are <laughs> articulating something about yourself or the way that they played. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big personality. I'm totally fine with that. I'm a Leo. I'm outgoing. I'm smart. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for everybody, but I've also always felt like, well, I don't like everybody. So it's totally fine that everybody doesn't like me. Right. Yeah. You can, you, and I think that that is such a, when people can recognize that about themselves at whatever age, like sometimes people go through their lives with their head in the sand and they don't understand anything, but what is surrounding them. And so for you to realize that at a relatively early age, that just, means you can kind of walk a little bit more confidently through the world. It's very freeing because, you know, you just don't give a fuck for the most part. Right, right. I was by um, an incredibly strong, my mother was like a, she was a middle-class Jewish woman with a black fro that went to jazz clubs in the late 50s, early 60s. So she was pretty radical in herself. And um, then my dad was more traditional, but and he was the emotional one. So the combination of the two of them um, led to the person that is me. Right, led to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so on that topic, like how were your parents reacting to you as you were, you know, bringing these ideas that, well, you said may have been, somewhat common in the area 
I mean, the styles of music and and all of your uh, political interests may have been uh, slightly different than what they were used to, or were they generally supportive? Um, there was lots of political arguments between me and my father um, when I was 13, 14, 15. Um, looking back on it, I think he was mostly pushing my buttons and playing devil's advocate. Um, they definitely, you know, my mother was pro-choice my mother believed in everything that one would hope that your parents would believe in but they were never actually really tested on that in terms of racism homophobia all of all of the things that um I would like to think that they were quite progressive on in the 80s one of my best friends Jason Rowe who did kill the robot fanzine he stayed with us for for months and he was, well, he still is gay. Um, he's gay and my parents never batted an eyelid. Um, and then when I was 16, I went vegetarian and my mother was really cross. When I was 18, I went vegan and she got even crosser. Um, and she said, well, I'm not making you special food. And a week later, she was making me special food. And then about six months after that, she actually went vegetarian so I think that, you know, it takes a, it takes fairly progressive people to be that influenced by their children, I think. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, that's a really compelling story because usually it's the, it, it's maybe that opposite reaction where it's like, okay, I'm not going to make special food for you. And this is a fad. My kid will get over it. And then that's just kind of where it ends. And yeah. for them to have their eyes opened up. So it's like, oh, maybe, maybe this is a lifestyle I should consider. Yeah. And I think... I think the best way I could um, just, I think my dad just antagonized me and pushed my buttons and we argued a lot about politics, but I really do think he understood me. Um, if I can tell you a, a story of the day that I realized that. Please. Yeah, uh, it was uh, 1995 and it was six months after my mother had died and my older brother had beat the shit out of his partner and I severed ties with him. Um, if you ever open the front door and see your brother's partner with two black eyes and a split lip, you kind of never want to talk to him again. Mm -hmm. And I distinctly remember him calling the house and asking to speak to me and my dad answering the phone. And I'll just, you know, I'll never forget this. My dad said to him, look, you know how she feels about violence against women. Let it go. Just let it go. Yeah. Let it go. You've <laughs> lost her. Right. Like this That is was just like, wow, my dad really gets how uncompromising I am about my politics. <laughs> yeah. And that he had my he had my back and he never he never he never pushed that situation on me ever again so i i do think that they they understood me um to some extent they definitely found it hard to wrap their head around the three months of trips that i'd go on to america just sleeping uh, on friends couches they seemed to understand that there was always a house full of hardcore kids eating and drinking at my house and 
they kind of understood that there would be like 10, 15, 20 letters arriving through our mailbox every week in relation to the zine. Um, but I don't think they ever really understood it because I think it's probably quite hard to understand a youth culture from a parent perspective, right? Especially an alternative one. Yo, Rockabilly is the place where you can buy all your officially licensed merch from bands. They ship it to you lickety split. I don't care what you're into, whether it's Black Sabbath, The Beatles, Grateful Dead, Bring Me the Horizon, or if you just want to like shop by genre, you're like, show me all the metal bands you got. Show me all the punk bands you got. It is a very fun website to poke around on, but use this promo code. This is very important. 100 words or less gets you 10% off your entire order, and then plus it tells you or them, that's what I meant to say, them, (laughs) the company, and you, the listener, are able to benefit from it. Everybody works in that whole marketing loop that we're, we're talking about here. But no joke, they have everything that you could possibly shake a stick at. They ship it from the Midwest. And like I said, it's all officially licensed stuff. So bands get paid. None of this bootleg material that you see existing on Instagram and other social media platforms. Don't get to, don't get duped into it by the real deal from rockabilia.com and use the promo code 100 words or less. Thank you as always to Rockabilia for their continued support of this pod. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. It's pretty awesome that there was that feeling that, hey, whatever she's tripped on, she seems passionate about it and she seems interested in it. So let's go ahead and, you know, let her keep going. I mean, obviously, alternatively, if they put their foot down, it's like, you can't go to America. You can't do these things. Like you would have figured out a way to do that. But yeah, it's still cool that they were permissive enough to just let that roll and let that happen as being quote unquote normal. Yeah, totally. Totally. They, uh, but my parents were big fans of America. We vacationed here in the late seventies and all through the eighties as a family, it was my, California was both of my parents' favorite place. They tried to emigrate here in the late seventies unsuccessfully. Um, so I think that they just loved that I was seeing so much of America. And then obviously when I eventually moved here, I think that, I think that made my dad really happy because I kind of realized their dream. Um, right. They could live yeah. through you. Yeah. 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 That's really special. 
And so like you mentioned, when you uh, moved to London and you were pursuing uh, higher education and going to school, um, did you, I, I guess, care about grades? And like, was that part of your life path in regards to, hey, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, like get a degree and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do with my life? Or was that just, you're just going through the motions, I guess? Um, I decided when I was 16, I wanted to become a clinical psychologist. So I got all the necessary qualifications that I needed to do. But uh, education for me was always a means to an end. Um, And my parents didn't really care what I did. My dad offered to set me up in my own business when I was 16. He was like, do you want to open a vegetarian cafe? Do you want to, what do you want to do? My parents didn't, my dad didn't care what I did as long as I was happy. And so I'd never had any pressure from, from my family. But at the same time, I'm the youngest of 21 grandchildren on my father's side of the family, and I was the first one to graduate college. And whilst they put no pressure on me, I know that they were proud. Um, But I did not work hard in school. I did the very bare minimum to get the grades I needed and and did that. Um, Yeah. I, right. I, I didn't do anything above and beyond. I, was right. I went to shows. I listened to bands. I didn't didn't do anything. I got, but I got I got my I got my degree, and then I got my master's degree. And the month that I was graduating with my master's degree, my mother died, and that drastically changed the trajectory of my life. Because when you lose a mother, when you're only twenty three you reevaluate everything that is important to you. And I realized that I wanted a life that was based on experiences and spending as much time as I possibly could with the people that mattered to me rather than making money. Right. And that, I mean, you can retroactively say that because of the experience that you went through, but was it, um, I mean, was it as clear as that shortly after the loss of her? Or was that, you know, because I know that you you lost your father a couple of years after that. Yeah. Um, what did no, that? It was, it, was, yeah. it was pretty clear. I just didn't want a job where I worked 60 hours a week. Sure. I just didn't. I just I just made that clean decision. I do not want it. It was about six months after that. I was just like, I don't I do not want a career is not something a career in quotation marks is not something that is really important to me. I don't have that much ambition, as it were. Um, connections are what matter. People are what matter. My dogs are what matter. Right. That, I don't know. You know. Right. And I've and sometimes I regret it. I should have become a doctor. I clearly should be. You know. I clearly should have done something where I could have. You know. Maybe that was a a misstep of youth to think that it had to be either or and I could have got really great qualifications and then done something where I could have had a good work-life balance um but I didn't so this is where we're at (laughs) now (laughs) right exactly and and so because of, of that trauma that you're talking about um how did you find yourself I guess pulling you, you know, you up by your own bootstraps or whatever you want to call it. Like, were you using, you know, did you go to therapy? Were you leaning on your friends? Were you just really focused on, you know, going to shows and experiencing that? How did, or was it a combination of all of those things? Um, 
my friends were absolutely fucking useless when my mother died. All of them, except for a couple. There was a couple that kept me going. Um, and it's never the people that you think. I mean, it, one of them was my best friend from when I was two, and he was amazing. One of them was a friend of my dad's best friend's son. Okay. Um, one of them was Richie Birkenhead from Into Another. Um, but my closest friends were all terrible. Um, my boyfriend at the time did not even offer to come to the funeral. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. My best friend, when I called and told her, she said, um, I'm at work, I'll call you back when I get off. And I didn't hear from her for four months. Um, so I spent the next, I, I feel like I spent the next three years finding people that I could depend upon and developing those relationships. And when my father died, I had the most amazing support that anybody could ever want. I had a, I had so many amazing friends that did everything that I needed and they were sponges for my grief. They were, they got on trains and came five hours and knocked on my door and said, I know you don't want to talk to me, but I'm going to make sure you eat for the next three days. They, they just did everything that I needed. And I, I got through it. I got through my dad's suicide because I had these wonderful friends. Um, but it was, it was a, a slow recovery from my mum's death. And I think moving really helped. That's when I moved from Brighton to Manchester. Mm -hmm. And we all figure out when we go through serious grief, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a loss, whether whatever kind of trauma it is, I think we all figure out how do we cope with this? How, how do I navigate this the best way that I can? And for me, it was developing new relationships with people that actually had depth and maybe maybe more understanding of loss than the people that were previously in my life themselves um but it's it's in I definitely learned how I cope with grief and I definitely learned how to rebuild myself and sadly I had to re redo that when I lost my dad and when I've gone through really really traumatic breakups Mm -hmm. And when, you know, I've lost a dog or a cat to lesser extents, but there's still grief. But yep. when you've gone through the sudden death of your mother that was also your best friend when you're 23, everything else, everything else you can cope with in life. And that's a very, it's a very hard lesson to learn, but it's also one that makes you, makes you feel like a, an incredibly strong person that, nothing life throws at you can knock you down. Does right. that make sense? Absolutely. Well, especially because you, when you were able to have those two vastly different experiences of the support systems, and then on top of that, just being able to find that solace, like, yeah, it's just incredible to have those two experiences where you're like, okay, this, you know, this is who I know I can trust and put that those feelings towards that. It's incredible. And, and I, I'm guessing too, that because of your interest in 
psychology, I can't help but tie that to the fact that clearly that plays into the expressiveness of in the independent music scene, <laughs> where especially a lot of the bands who I know you like do wear their hearts on their sleeves and are speaking about whether it's their emotions or personal experiences. Had Was that, I guess, musically speaking, what you were always drawn to immediately? Or was that just something that just happened to be a pure coincidence? It's what I was drawn to. I mean, I definitely... There's, there's that... There's that concept, isn't there, of um, trauma, trauma porn. Yeah. Of, like, watching other people's suffering is a is something that, you know, it's like a car crash. You can't look away from it. And I don't feel like I have that in a kind of indiscriminate fashion, but I, I do... I do love the intensity of the trauma. I mean, I, I definitely feel like it's something that um, it's it's the it's the pinnacle of intensity of emotions, whether it's you know whether whether we want it to be or not. And in the same way, I love extreme happiness and I want I want somebody to tell me like what's the happiest moment of your life as well as what's the worst moment of your life so I don't feel like I'm just drawn to like awful things I'm just I'm a pretty intense person and I want to like grab everything from life and and all of it its highest peaks and its deepest troughs I guess if that if 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 it and if that means that um, I think that it's probably easier in art to talk about the deepest troughs in a mm. lot of ways to like sing or play music or express. Um, I think it's incredibly difficult to write a love song about how happy you are and it not be cheesy. But I think it's incredibly, you know, most people will, it's, there's, there's, there's very few that, like really touch you and you're like I get that but so many people can put the their pain and suffering into music and it's immediately palpable yep for sure it's especially when you're talking about these universal things that everybody questions and goes through uh, those are the ones where it's like it yes it's easy to articulate it but if you're articulating it um you know e- effectively where I'm just like I don't even need to really hear music behind this and I feel <laughs> I feel what you're feeling yeah and then the, the the real artists are the ones that the, you don't even need to have the words on top of the music I feel it just from your fucking guitar you know yep. like and, and it's not even about something that I relate to like I mean one of my favorite bands in the last few few years has been off with their heads and Ryan sings about mental health addiction depression suicide none of which really affect me but it's that intensity that I just pulls me back to listen to them over and over again because it's it's passionate and it's raw and that to me is the the best of art yeah oh absolutely I agree and and I guess part of that did you ever feel compelled uh to play in a band (laughs) you know I know that you've clearly talked guitar lessons once okay okay yeah um, me and some of the other chicks up front, 
in gosh what year would that have been um 92 okay our band was going to be called coat rack perfect (laughs) great name totally good name i could not learn to play the guitar i could not master that and you know and i um i grew up going going to music lessons and i can read music and i can play the keyboards i could i had a piano um but me and the guitar I'm not that coordinated, even with the piano. I always found it really hard to, that my left hand and right hand were doing different things. And then if you involve your feet as well, then it's just game over. (laughs) Totally. Not for me. Right. So you're like my, my uh, talent, even though talent might be used in air quotes, uh, did not uh, preclude you from playing in a band. It's just like, I think I can, I can do other things that are not related to playing. I'm also pretty tone deaf. So the, the, the singing thing, the singing thing is not for my entire family. If I'm honest here, Right. (laughs) Martins are not known for being able to keep a tune. I was once told that I changed key in every line of happy birthday which I think is a talent that many people couldn't do, but I couldn't actually hear that I was changing key every line. Yeah. My downfall comes. That's, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that is a talent if you are meaning to do that, but if it's unintentional, then yes, that could be a little little problematic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so as you were, you know, getting involved in the scene more deeply. And like you said, you know, getting pen pals across the world and, you know, traveling to different, areas of the country for shows and that sort of stuff. Um, what, what type of bands were you kind of immediately attracted to once you got past the, you know, level of like the introductory, you know, punk and hardcore stuff, whether it's minor threat youth today and everything. Um, because I know your musical taste has been pretty diverse from the get go. Uh, was it, was that always kind of the case or did you kind of stick to, Oh, I, I like this, you know, youth crew hardcore or whatever. And that's like, those are the type of shows I'm going to, or were you always going to everything? I never really liked youth crew hardcore that much. Okay. Um, I liked crippled youth and I liked the first underdog seven inch. And I liked the chain of strength seven inch. Perfect. That was like, that was really basically it right. um, that, was, that was the extent and which which like you know children are that are revelation records fanatics are just rolling over in their graves uh-huh. it's fine that's fine yeah i'm fine with that totally. i stand by it i stand by it they're the three best three inch seven inches ever made i would agree fight me yeah fight me <laughs> name a better one um uh and then as i got more i loved early green day I spent a lot of time listening to Green Day in 91 and 92. Um, And then in 93, when I started traveling to the States, it was far more bands like Grey House and Policy of Three and more of the DC-influenced but not necessarily Discord kind of bands like a cross between dc stuff and abolition stuff abolition stuff was a bit too screamy for him for me um i love a lot of dc stuff i love soul side i love the girls right. i love rates of spring but fugazi were amazing i saw them in 89 they were that was life-changing but they never had the same grip on me 
um, after that show. Um, and then I guess I was present for the beginning of, you know, the post-hardcore emo scene, you know, yep. the, the, the rise of all of the bands that Revelation basically became famous for, um, as apart from youth crew stuff. Um, and I definitely uh, fell in love with Chamberlain. And, yeah, I have a wide and varied taste in music, but they're still my favourite band. Um, I don't know. I. Yeah. You just don't, you just always you followed where your heart was. Absolutely, absolutely. And then I started putting records out in '95. It just seemed like a natural '94. It seemed like a natural progression from the zine because mm-hmm. I'd already started doing like zine trades and a little distro, and then somebody wanted to trade some records for zines, and so I had like a shoebox full of records under my bed. So then I just started putting out records and on Simba, and that was fun. And I've got, you know, I've got a new record coming out next month. First one in six years. Right. And it's incredible. Do, yeah, I just do them when like something comes up, and that seems like that seems like a fun project. And I don't have any expectations that I'll do another one for. Could be six weeks. Could be six months. Could be six years. And I do what I want to do, and I don't have um, any ambition to make Simba a quote-unquote real record label because having worked in the industry for such a long time I know what a laborious task that is um and and I want it to be a hobby um but I did do a collection of all the zines uh about 10 years ago and put out a book and I'm currently working on two books but that is slow going it's yes, it, that uh, yeah, the compilation of those things is uh, is, is quite a task. <laughs> yes. yes, well, these are two books that I have to write from scratch, so it's even more daunting than doing a compilation, right? Exactly, of, of old material. <laughs> yeah, one's a photo book, so that in itself shouldn't have too much text, sure. Um, and then but the other one, all the interviews are done, I just have to write the damn thing. You must know about EvilGreed.net. They are an incredible web store solutions provider based out of Berlin, Germany. And I know that may sound very complicated, but they make web stores for bands and record labels. And they do it with a very specific point of view. If you are into anything artistic and heavy, that is what Evil Greed will deliver to you in spades. But first, you must use this promo code when you are shopping on their website. 100 words. That gets you 10% off of your entire order. And I think you will absolutely love their roster. They have amazing web stores from labels like Closed Casket Activities, Flat Spot Records, The Flesner, Profound Lore, Pure Noise. They have a lot of stuff going on there. And on top of it, they have artist stores like Botch, Deaf Heaven, Emma Ruth Rundle, so many amazing things they have going on there. And like I said, they have a very specific point of view. They're not welcoming every band and every record label in the world. When you are into this type of stuff, you will just have, you'll go on a shopping spree. And that's where the promo code 100 words will come in very handy for you. I know I said that they were based in Berlin, Germany, but they ship to the United States very cheaply and efficiently. And uh, you won't lose with that. I've ordered from them. I love their customer service, able to get it out to me. Honestly, I ordered it. It probably took about seven days, which is sick 
from from Berlin to the United States of America. It's beautiful. So visit evilgreed.net, use the promo code 100 words and find your newest favorite record, label, band, all of the above. Thank you, Evil Greed. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. And so when you moved, uh, like we were, or like you had mentioned, when you uh, worked for, you know, many, many years at uh, Revelation Records, and that's obviously where we became close to one another. When you, when you moved over here, that seems, even though you were already very active and a participant in the scene and, you know, working at Revelation is, is an exciting opportunity, uh, no matter what, were you scared were you nervous about coming over to the states or was it very much like this is an exciting opportunity i can't wait to do this i don't think nerves crossed my mind sure just something you had to do i don't think i even like i've never had anxiety i've never been anxious about things i've never really you know the only times i've ever been nervous about something is like taking a driver's test interview for a visa like when when you're like when your destiny is in somebody else's hands Mm, um it was uh i had already decided that i was closing my distro um which at the time was called revelation europe because jordan had given me yeah jordan and i were working really closely together um i (laughs) i was at the position where I either had to take on staff because I couldn't keep up with the workload or I had to shut it down. And I was offered the job of running Southern by John Loder. And I thought that that seemed like a fun thing to do. So I had planned to shut it down. And then I came out to visit Jordan to help him with some stuff. And that's when he offered me a job. And we really didn't actually think I was going to get the visa. So it was kind of just like, a, well, let's roll the dice. But at the time, um, my boyfriend, Chris, um, their guitar player from Refused, wanted to go to film school. And he was, we were doing long distance between Sweden and England. And he was going to go, I was going to move to London. He was going to move to London and he was going to go to film school. But he thought going to film school in LA would be much cooler and better. So he was totally up for it. So I moved in the September knowing that Chris would be joining me in the January. So, but then I made all of the plans for moving and in the, I think about a month, no, about uh, six weeks before I moved, my father killed himself. So all of my 
excitement and passion for doing anything was very quelled. And it was just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other and getting through the the weeks, months until Chris came. But at the same time, it was incredibly difficult because I think I thought, I don't think I'd, I, you know, I was like, oh, this would be fun. And then my dad died. So everything was not, nothing was fun. And then Refuse broke up and Chris and David came early and they were both living with me for two months in the October and November. And then David and I split up on the end of December. So it was an incredibly difficult time. And to answer your question from half an hour ago, that's when I started therapy. That's when I was like, okay, this I need some, is, yeah, I need to dive this, in deeper. I this is hard. This is really hard. It was when David and I split up that I it's it was the January of ninety nine that I started I saw a bereavement counselor. And, you know, I explained to her everything that had happened and she was just like, uh, that's far more loss than most people can handle in a very short time. And we will work through this. And we did. Yep. And what was the initial, I guess, conceit of your job? Was it very nebulous? Because, I mean, most independent record labels is like, oh, yeah, like, we just need you in here because we need some organization and that sort of stuff. Or was there, oh, let's hire Veek with this title? Um, so Jordan had f- paid for my flight that end of, I think it was like, it was April of 98. He had paid for my he paid for my flight to come out and interview all of the staff and try and help him manage everything okay. and like get everything. So he basically was like, I, I, he flew me out for like two weeks and we called it like as a consultant. I wasn't actually paid to do it, but he covered my flight and all my food and, and I had fun. Um, and... In doing that, I fired the publicist because I found out they were on the phone four hours a day to their girlfriend, then did a whole bunch of interviews with people to find a new publicist. And one of the people that I actually interviewed, her initials were, her name was Mary Ellen. And on the last night, Jordan and I were sitting right in his kitchen and I was writing like the plan of action. And I wrote hire Mary Ellen, but I abbreviated it to hire M-E. And he read it upside down and he said, hire me. I should hire you. I should so hire you. Will you come? Will you do it? And I was just like, I can't work for you. We can't get a visa. And he was like, I'll call a lawyer tomorrow. And he called a lawyer the next day and it worked out. And I was hired as a distribution manager. Got it. Um, I was hired as like the label manager, distribution manager, the everything, the manager. And so I was brought in. And obviously, if you hire somebody externally, when you have like a team of 20 or 25 staff, it just gets everyone's backup, especially when it's not actually explained to any of the staff that this person is being hired to get everything running more smoothly. And it was just full of conflict. And Jordan was so torn. You know, he was so overwhelmed with what he had on his plate 
you know, far more work than one person can handle without delegating to staff. But the staff were always, um, Jordan also likes to control everything the way a lot of small business owners are. So that kind of, you know, you've hired people to do things, but then their hands are kind of a little tied. So he hired me to do that job, but everything I had to run by him and my hands were a little tied. And so we had some conflict and then we decided that I would take a sideways step and handle specific departments. So I handled foreign sales, but I also, I also stepped in, in different places. So I would often be doing my job and then the, and then the publicist's job because we didn't have a publicist and then I would be doing my job and then US distro sales because we didn't have somebody to handle that and then over the years I became the accountant and I wore most hats and I did production so I I wore all of the hats except for the graphic design kind of area right and I got an insane amount of experience and so many incredible wonderful wonderful memories from from working there and I think that most you know I'm I'm not criticizing Jordan in any way because I think that is an incredibly it's it's a very hard thing to trust that your employees are going to follow the direction that you want your company to go in when you don't even have time to think about what direction you want your company to go in, let alone express that because you're just so overwhelmed with the day-to-day running of things. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a very interesting thing, the way that a lot of people just kind of fall in to owning a business that they started as something that they wanted to do themselves, but you just cannot handle the workload. And it's a, it's a tough position to be in because you have to delegate that workload, but, that's a hard thing to do for some people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially like, I mean, when you're talking about building a small business, everyone, like you said, wears all of those different hats. And, yeah. and as you were, you know, doing all of these things, you were so incredibly involved in the, every aspect of that labels business and watching the ebb and flow of the music industry over those, you know, 20 years that you existed within the, um, you know, the revelation records ecosystem. I'm sure there are certain eras that you look back on as being either, you know, particularly difficult or uh, on the flip side, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how exciting it was to be around this time. Do you uh, do you have particular, you know, whether it's years or you mark them towards releases? <laughs> how uh, how do you reflect on that as I, I bring that question up to you? I would say that the. The early noughties you know, the years when the music industry, you know, it started to get into file sharing, but before it really wrecked things, when CDs were still viable, when enough, um, enough money was still coming in to make, to make it possible to fly to fests, to, to, to be traveling all the time, to have booths at different festivals was so much fun like representing the label flying into south by southwest cmj hellfest crazy fest magic fest furnace fest 
Monster Fest. I mean, there were some years when I was just away so much of the time doing stuff, hanging out with my friends, um, flying to New York for the weekend because a band's in the studio, Christensen, I remember doing that. Um, you know, this, the, that kind of, that was, they were, they were glorious years. Um, and, you know, and I think back of Elliot, Christensen, Since My Man, Curl Up and Dive, and even though they were local, you know, that, that's the same era to me. Um, they were really, I'm going to have forgotten a couple of bands that will get sure. really upset about that. That's um, okay. <laughs> that's okay. Don't pressure me. Yeah. Um, and, but I also feel like I still have all those friendships. Those were wonderful, wonderful years, but it, I still talk to people in those bands all the time. And even, you know, the Elliot reunions that are happening this year, I'm, you know, heavily involved with that, running their Instagram for them for fun, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that there was a time when it got quite tedious and it got, you know, if you asked me what how I felt about my job, I would be like, well, I might as well be selling toilet rolls. You know, it's just it's just catalogue numbers that, you know, we, we stopped putting records out and we didn't really work with new bands and things had got kind of grim. There wasn't much budget for things. And then um, Rev 25 happened. I mean, gosh, that was, what, 10 years ago now? Yeah. Um, and that was, that was one of the best years. Um, I, put together a, I put together a book for Jordan when we did Rev 25 um that was it was a little seven inch hardback hardback book that I had printed on demand and you know we only made about 50 of them um for all the people that contributed but it I basically contacted all of the people in our bands and a lot of Jordan's friends and asked for a memory of the you know the day you met Jordan a fun story with Jordan the day you found out your band was signed into Revelation all of that kind of stuff and I put it together and once I'd collected everybody's contributions I had to write an introduction to it and I sat down and wrote it and then I shared it with Stacy, who didn't work at Revelation anymore but she had for a long time and she she was proofreading the book and um, she read it and she said that it came across really angry and not happy and so I reread it again and then I scratched it and started from the beginning and kind of like delved in deep as to my gratitude at what all of those years at Revelation back then had given me. At that point, I think it was 14 or 15 years. And I think that definitely um, switched my mindset to truly appreciate everything that Revelation had given me then. And that has, I don't think I've ever really lost that. Um, and I presented the book to Jordan on the day that, on the last day of the, the weekend, which we didn't really have huge expectations going into Rev 25, but I will absolutely now say it was one of the best weekends of my entire life and always will be. Um, it was such an emotional weekend and the bands were so incredible and there was such an, inc an just an amazing 
atmosphere with no egos and no bullshit. And I saw so many friends that I didn't know even were coming as well as everybody that lived locally. And it was just a truly special weekend. And um, I presented the book to Jordan on the last day of it. And he, <laughs> he hugged the book and said, I always wanted something like this to exist in the world. And now it does. <laughs> That's so cool. And gave me the best hug he's ever given me. <laughs> and, and then sent me the sweetest email that night of appreciation. And I just look back at that weekend as very representative of all of the, I mean, I'm, I'm getting emotional just talking about it, of just of, of everything that Revelation gave me because it gave me, it has given me so many incredible experiences and so many of my closest friends and led me on the path that now where I work at Pirates Press Records, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't worked at Revelation and I wouldn't have the life I have now with all the people I have in my life now if it hadn't been for that, for that path that I took. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, I really uh, appreciate the description of that because I think it, for any challenges that people run through in their creative pursuits, there's always that element that gets lost to it where you don't realize either the people that you're working closely alongside with, like all of the positive aspects that you put out there, but you don't really see it unless it gets reflected back on you with that, like you said, that hug, that appreciation yeah. email. It's like, that's yeah. the stuff where you're like, oh, so that's why I've been doing it. I sometimes lose that in the day-to-day, -day, you know, grind of yeah. emails or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it is, it is a, is a thankless job working at a record label yep. in general. You know, if, if the record does well, it's because the band wrote a great record. If the record does badly, it's because the record label didn't do their job. Right. It's your fault. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's either not, it's either my fault or not my glory. Um, yep. It's rarely because I did a kick-ass job. Um, and I, I figured that out very early on, but I also think that, you know, music changed my life so much and it changes people's lives every single day. And the only way that that music can reach people, whether it's, finding it in a store, getting it delivered through their letterbox, um, downloading it, watching it on YouTube, seeing it on Instagram. The only way that they can, they can get that is if there are people working at labels, supporting those bands, getting that music out there. And those bands being able to continue to do their creating because they are getting compensated for it. Yep, exactly. It's a, uh, and that actually leads nicely into a question I was going to ask you about navigating the business side of things. Like, because clearly you had to do that even when you were, you know, doing your zine, just being able mm -hmm. to like, oh, I just want to cover costs. And then, you know, maybe I can pay for, you know, a few records on, on top of that. How have you viewed the business side of things? Has it always been that? what you're kind of talking about right there, that necessary evil in order for us to be able to keep things going? Or were you comfortable with the idea of like, yes, we have to make these things work from a business perspective in order to keep things moving forward? I've always felt like the people that do the work deserve to be compensated for their time. Um, I remember having um, arguments with a Belgian dude in like 93 because he ran 
uh, zine distribution where he didn't mark anything up. And I marked everything up. Um, and he was just like, but it should, it, there shouldn't be any profit. And I was like, that's fine if it takes you four hours a week to run your distro. What if it takes you 60 hours a week? How are you going to pay the rent and how are you going to eat? And he was like, well, you shouldn't have to. You should always have a job to support yourself and then do it in your free time. I was like, well, that's... That's your opinion, if, if, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's A, that's your opinion, but B, that's not a sustainable plan if whatever you're selling continues to gain popularity. At some point, it might be more than you can manage in your free time. And there should be no... I feel like there's like a moral guideline where you know, I never wanted to become a millionaire out of this, but I'm quite happy being covering my living expenses as a result of the work I put in. I think that that's, you know, a very fair transaction. Um, right. And I, and I, I don't, I don't think I ever would have become very comfortable had I, you know, if I'd have ever made, if, if only, you know, if Simba Records had put out a band that had blown up, I would have given them most of the money because it's their art. Um, I, I, t I took on the um, Discord Records business model mm -hmm. of 50-50 profit split whenever I put a record out, which I felt was great. But a lot of the time now I see bands and labels working with a 70-30 in the band's favor. And I think that's fantastic if, you know, if circumstances permit that. Right. Which uh, leads us to the, what you've been doing now with uh, Pirates Press. And like you said, the reason that these relationships exist is because you are working so closely with them at um, Revelation. And when, and I'm sure this was uh, said back to you when you left Rev, I, I think a lot of people were <laughs> directly attaching the idea that like, oh yes, like no, there's, that you would never leave. Like, you know, it's just like, especially yeah. when people find their quote unquote dream job, you yeah. know, like, why are you leaving that? Um, and for, I'm not looking for all the reasons that you left, but you being able to go from one situation of a, a sensible dream job to another job at a record label that could be, you know, described as a dream job. Did you feel, uh, I guess, lucky in being able to make that transition or what was your oh. thought process? Incredibly lucky, incredibly okay. lucky. Um, but I had also, there'd been definitely times over those years at Revelation when I had thought, oh, maybe maybe I should look into options and thought about leaving. Um, but, it, I mean, it was largely a financial decision and I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I could sustain sure. the, 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 the lifestyle I had on my revelation salary. Um, it's uh, Jordan has never been, um, he's never been in, he's never, he's always been more focused on, I don't know what the best way to put this, like revelation is stable, right? but it never took risks. And that's a wonderful thing, 
but not necessarily. It's a wonderful thing in, in many ways because it didn't go down the road of, it wasn't greedy. It's never been greedy. It's never gone. It never went down the road of, you know, a, a trust kill or a ferret or an eyeball where it got too big, too fast and imploded. But it also then, you know, if you don't roll the dice, you can't win the, you know, you don't win the game. Um, right. It never also, it didn't ever grow the way that victory did, for example. Um, so, Skippy, my current boss, had grown an, a massive business in Pirates Press, the record broker. Yep. Um, and then Pirates Press Records is a business that is his passion and that we do for fun. Um, and for because because we care about our scene rather than it being the be-all and end-all. So Skippy's a very ambitious person. Skippy's a very driven person. Skippy's just, a, you know, he's a fantastic human being that um, has vision and wants things to grow and that and, and is prepared to take some risks and that's exciting, you know, and I felt like that would be a, a good fit for me um, in, at where I was in my life. Um, and a lot of the bands on Pirates when I first on Pirates Press Records when I first moved over here um, didn't hold the place in my heart that a lot of the bands on Revelation do. But yeah, yeah, I was I was actually good. That was a perfect <laughs> idea of just because they're the label Pirates Press is so you know clearly defined within the the context of of punk. Yeah. And you, I mean, were uh, obviously a fan of I'm that, a, but I'm yeah. a hardcore kid, right? Exactly. So I totally get that. I'm an emo hardcore kid. Totally get that. Right. Right. Um, but I like Coxbarra. Right. And <laughs> I love Barstool Preachers. And as I moved, we started putting working with tons of different bands, and that diversity has been fantastic i mean the year i started we started working with the agrolites and subhumans and obviously those are both big name bands that are you know and and as they with a lot of history and um a lot of um you know a, a lot of people that didn't even know who pirates press records were then started being interested in the label and we started growing great you know exponentially um and then this past year, Skip, you know, Skippy has um, definitely encouraged me to bring bands to the table. So we started working with Sweat and with Susie Moon and um, bands that, you know, we in, I don't know, like a couple of years ago we did Seized Up. You know, that's you know that's a band that could have easily been on Revelation. Sweat could have been on Revelation. Yeah. Um, whether we would ever put out a band that would be emo i don't know but we definitely discuss it and we definitely have conversations about it if there was a band i was passionate about and i so appreciate um that freedom and trust that i feel like i have at, at pirates press records and we have um you know a very open dialogue and there's a there's a few of us that bring bands to the table and i think we've diversified musically 
a lot in the last four years since I've since I've been at Pirates Press Records. It was funny because when Seized Up signed to the label, everyone thought that that was me and it wasn't. <laughs> but Sweat was me. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. People start to look into it. We're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see where Vic brought that over. It's like, no, 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 that was already there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Somebody else brought that. Gaudi brought that. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that your record label, very similar to your zine, is very reflective of you as a person, not only from the relationships that you have with people in the band where you just want to be like, I, I want to put this record out because like, I love you as a human. And that's always because the label exists as a hobby. You have the ability to do that. Um, yeah. Is that always just like the number one with a bullet sort of North star for you? Or have there been times where you have entertained the idea of not even saying, taking it more seriously where you could, you know, grow the label or whatever, but just being like, Oh, well maybe I can, you know, put out this record that, uh, is a little bit, you know, more expensive because uh, it might get, you know, more recognition here. But I'm not going to, you know, quit my full time job for this. Let's be clear. I think it was um, 2000 or 2001, and I put out maybe six CDs in the same year, and that's when I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this up a notch. I'm gonna do this seriously. And some of them were bands and people that I loved. And a couple of them were just, I really liked the band and I thought that they would do well. And um, all the people in the bands ended up being giant douchebags. And, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that's a mistake. Um, I don't want to deal with the assholes, so I'm just going to make your CD out of press and, and say, yeah, this didn't work out. Um so I definitely think that my North Star of working with my friends is the way to go. However, there'll be a caveat to that of there have been times, definitely at Revelation, where I was working with friends and when things didn't go the way that they wanted things to, it affected the friendships. So it can have the opposite effect and... I think that that's far more likely to happen when you're dealing with a serious record label and a serious band rather than a label like Simba that I do as a hobby. Right. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. Like the, the implications of, you know, bands pitching to you and you having the opportunity to work with someone on the onset that may seem cool and trustworthy and then ends up being not like those opportunities could have been, presenting themselves more clearly at certain times. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's, it's one, I think one of the things that I love to do on Simba and have done is, you know, repressing a record that came out 20 years ago or 10 years ago, because there's just no pressure with that. Everyone's just excited that it's getting reissued. Um, whether that's an endpoint record or a gray house discography or the suede head discography, you know, the band aren't going on tour. Nobody's, being like, well, how many have you shipped? You know, everyone's just like, have you have you covered your costs? Are we all good? Right. You know, and, and it's so mellow and so pleasant. So that's, you know, often the reason that I tend to stick to those kind of releases for Simba. Yeah, which is, uh, which is great because, I mean, it really it leans into who you are as a person and just making sure that I, I just want this thing to be in print for people to potentially consume yeah. no matter when they are 
dipping into the scene. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah. And when I did the interviews with the zine, I only ever interviewed people that I was interested in having conversations with or where I loved the band. It never once crossed my mind to interview somebody in a bigger band so that I would sell more copies of the zine that yeah <laughs> that just that was incongruous with my thought process <laughs> totally yeah that seems like an insane thought process like oh man yeah. I'll sell a few more more issues it's like what really no I don't think so <laughs> I mean it, it, yeah it's it's and it's weird now whenever like when I started at Pirates Press Record there was a there was like an article about us switching digital distribution and me starting at Pirates in Billboard and I was just like, that's really weird. And I think when the Spitboy discography came out, um, I did liner notes with with um, Billy Joe from Green Day. And people put my name and his name in the same sentence in like Rolling Stone and places like that. And I've just never, fame and fortune have never been why I do this. You know, it's always just been about self-expression and, and passion. So they're, I don't really think too much about it. I just go with my gut. Yep, for sure. And that's, uh, I think that's why people gravitate and are able to still, you know, you as a musical entity of releasing stuff, like that's why you can still exist where it's like, oh, if this, okay, well, you know, <laughs> if Simba's putting this out, like I need to pay attention. It doesn't need to be, you know, 40,000 people. It just needs to be a thousand people that care about this. And that's all yeah. I want to reach. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's just great. <laughs> and I think that, that in a, in a, in in the in a lot of ways that's that's what a record label always was when when it was but when it was done by one person and that person handled all the A&R it was like do you like they were tastemakers you know do you like this person's taste in music well then you'll probably like all of the records that person is putting out no matter how diverse they are. Yep. But that's an incredibly difficult thing to maintain, especially as people age and maybe don't go to as many shows and maybe aren't as involved in the scene because of the different, you know, life choices. And and it's a youth culture. Um, yep. It's a hard thing to to for somebody to have a business that's a label and then be solely responsible for choosing the artists. I think that that's, you know, I mean, is, is it hard to do in your 40s? Sure. Is it hard to do in your 60s to know what music teenagers would like? I think that's probably really hard. Yeah, that's becoming increasingly difficult, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, Vic, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and I, I appreciate you being as open as I knew you would be. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. I had a lot of fun. Oh boy, hopefully you got some info and intel on how you can, uh, you know, just exist in the music business if that's something that you are interested in pursuing. Or if it's just a matter of like, you know, putting out some records, doing a zine, all that sort of stuff, I know that Veek would definitely encourage you to speak out, let your voice be heard, let your perspective be heard. And uh, yeah, ultimately, when you're supporting music and arts, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good life as far as I'm concerned. So next week, I have a great discussion with Jess Nix, who sings for the bands World of Pleasure and Mortality Rate. And both of those bands I'm 
absolutely obsessed with. <laughs> and I fell in love with them probably the past year and a half or so. I know they've existed for a little bit longer, but I just, I dove into both the bands and I was like, man, I got to have Jess on here. So punished her over Instagram. She was like, I don't really do interviews like a podcast. I don't know. I'm a little uncomfortable with, I've only done like one or two. And so we were able to do it and it was a really fun discussion. So that's what I have next week. Jess from world of pleasure and mortality rate. So until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.